Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Well, I've managed to muddle through despite the COVID lockdowns, and I have for you three more extraordinary tales. If you're listening to this in the far-flung future and don't know what a COVID lockdown is, well, lucky you. In our first story, we revisit the sinking of the Titanic. In a previous episode of The Extraordinarium, I brought you the tale of Charles Lightoller, who had more than his fair share of seafaring near misses, including being one of the survivors of the Titanic. But there are many fantastic stories of survival from the Titanic. If you've watched James Cameron's movie Titanic, you will be familiar with the character Molly Brown, a haughty down-to-earth woman played by Kathy Bates. The character was based on a real person, one Margaret Brown, who only became known as Molly posthumously. The unsinkable Molly Brown would become one of the most famous survivors of the Titanic, but not because of her luck or ingenuity, rather because of her selflessness, setting aside her wealth and status to assist in the Titanic's evacuation and her care of the survivors once on board the Carpathia. We will definitely be revisiting her story. But one of the most interesting Titanic survivors has gone largely unnoticed, and that may be because her extraordinary tale isn't confined to the night the Titanic sank. The truly marvellous part of her survival wouldn't embed itself into public consciousness until four years later. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get some background first. Violet Constance Jessup was born in Argentina on the 2nd of October 1887, and like many people of her generation, she experienced many great hardships. The eldest of nine children, Jessup would assist with caring for her younger siblings, only five of whom survived, until catching the dreaded consumption, now known as tuberculosis, and becoming seriously ill. Despite a poor prognosis, she beat the odds and recovered, but at age 16, her father passed away due to complications from surgery. Her mother then moved the family to England, and as the sole breadwinner, took a job as a stewardess on ocean liners. Her mother too would become ill and pass away, and the young Violet would leave school and follow in her mother's footsteps, taking a job on the Orinoco in 1908, working for the Royal Mail Line. In 1911, at the age of 24, she began working for the White Star Line as a stewardess on board the Olympic, the first of the White Star Line's three Olympic-class ocean liners. On the 20th of September 1911, the Olympic collided with the HMS Hawk, and while there were no casualties, it was a serious accident nonetheless, and for Jessup, an ominous portent of things to come. Violet Jessup would stay with the White Star Line and later transfer to the Titanic. I'm sure we all know the story of the Titanic, the second of the three Olympic-class liners operated by the White Star Line, and the disaster that unfolded on the night of the 14th of April 1912. Jessup would find herself ordered onto the deck to give a demonstration of how to wear a life jacket, ostensibly for those who couldn't speak English. She was then ordered to give a demonstration of how to get into a lifeboat, as some of the passengers were a little hesitant, and according to legend was handed a baby by one of the ship's officers as the boat was being lowered. Once rescued and safely aboard the Carpathia, the baby was snatched by a distressed woman who ran off in tears without speaking. Jessup would claim years later she received an anonymous phone call from a woman 
asking her about the incident. When she replied in the affirmative, the woman said simply, I am that baby. The story is in some dispute, with records stating the only baby on Lifeboat 16 was Asad Thomas, who was handed not to Jessup, but to a woman named Edwina Trout, who would hand the baby to his confirmed mother in person, but I'm sure under the immense stress of the moment, record-keeping wasn't a top priority, and I can't dismiss her claim out of hand. Safely away from the Titanic, a lot of people would have been too traumatised to return to the sea after not one, but two serious accidents on two almost identical ships operated by the same company especially given that the second one resulted in one of the worst and certainly the most famous maritime disasters in history, but not Violet Jessup. She continued with the White Star Line, transferring to the third sister ship in the Olympic class, the Britannic. The Britannic would find itself converted to a hospital ship during World War I, and on the morning of November the 21st, 1916, it hit a mine and sank killing 30 of the 1,066 people on board. Jessup would sustain a head injury when she had to jump from her lifeboat, which was being drawn under the stern of the ship by the still-functioning propellers, but she recovered. A quick aside, another survivor of the Olympic and Titanic was also on board the Britannic that day. Stoker Arthur John Priest. He survived too, and so compelling are his stories of surviving maritime disasters I almost changed tack and told his story instead, but he shall have to keep for another day. So, even after all this, Violet Jessup continued working as a stewardess for the White Star Line and various other companies and would ultimately spend a total of 42 years at sea, finally retiring to a thatched cottage in Suffolk and passing away on the 5th of May 1971. In 1932, a major event would take place in the New South Wales capital city of Sydney, Australia. After almost nine years of construction, 52,000 long tonnes of steel, 6 million rivets, handmade, mind you, and sadly the deaths of 16 workers, finally the Sydney Harbour Bridge was to be formally opened. At around that time... A young lad living 1,000 kilometres away in Leongatha, Victoria, was taking care of the family farm. Lenny Gwyther was born on the 18th of April 1922 to Leo Tennyson Gwyther and Clara Amelia Gwyther. And when Leo was hospitalised after breaking his leg, the responsibility of performing the men's work fell to nine-year-old Lenny. In particular, it was time for the ploughing to be done, and young Lenny took to the task with gusto. Had he not, that year's crops would not have been planted, disastrous by any measure, but particularly against the backdrop of the Great Depression. He performed his duties well, and it was decided he should be rewarded for his efforts, and Lenny knew exactly what he wanted to do. Lenny was keenly interested in engineering, and he would like to go and have a Captain Cook at the world's largest steel arch bridge when it opened, and he had the means to get there too. For his second birthday, he had been given a chestnut pony. The pony's name was Ginger Mick, named after his father's favourite C.J. Dennis character. It was Ginger Mick that would be his transport and company on the 1,000km journey. 
It seems odd to us these days to allow an unaccompanied nine-year-old to go on such a journey, but this was 1932, and despite some misgivings expressed by his mother, Lenny and Ginger Mick, along with a swag, some clothes and his toothbrush, set off on the 3rd of February 1932. It wasn't very long into his journey when the press picked up on the story and newspapers and radio began reporting his progress, which captivated the public and led to a certain level of celebrity, which in turn led to some extraordinary experiences. When he passed through the nation's capital, Canberra, for example, he was introduced to then Prime Minister Joseph Lyons. They shook hands and had tea in the members' room at the old Parliament House. But it wasn't all beer and skittles. A few days into the journey, they had a narrow escape from an attempted attack when a mentally unstable derelict jumped out of the bushes at them. There was torrential rain and fog to deal with, and while passing through the Tralgan area, they were almost caught in a bushfire. But it was worth the four-month odyssey when they finally arrived in Sydney's Martin Place to a throng of 10,000 people who cheered and applauded. Lenny was invited to be part of the parade across the bridge at its opening. He was taken to the Royal Easter Show and to Ronga Park Zoo, where he rode an elephant. He would meet Australian cricketer Don Bradman, who was universally the idol of every young boy at the time, and be given an autographed cricket bat. And on the trip home, he gave a talk about his journey at a school, and at one stage was handed a one-pound note, a princely sum at the time. When he and Ginger Mick arrived back in Leongatha, 800 people came to greet him. He would have a road named after him, and was recorded in the Guild's records as, quote, the youngest person known to make a solo equestrian journey, end quote. Lenny would go on to enlist and fight in the Second World War. He would marry, have a daughter, and work as an experimental engineer for the Holden Motor Company. A keen fisherman, astronomer, ice skater and sailor, in 1992, at age 70, he was building a yacht with the intention of sailing to Tasmania, then New Zealand, but sadly passed away before setting off on his new adventure. As for Ginger Mick, he lived out his days on the Gwytha family farm, dying at the age of 27. An incredible team who went on an extraordinary adventure. Ronald Opus was done with life, and he had decided to end it all. He was in deep financial trouble, which for him at least was incredibly frustrating, and his suicide note reflected his state of mind. He walked to the roof on the 10th floor of his building, and with little contemplation, leapt off. But when his autopsy was conducted on the 23rd of March 1994, his death was put down as a possible homicide. Cameras were nowhere near as prevalent in 1994, and there was no evidence he had been pushed or met with any foul play. Indeed, the suicide note was in his own handwriting, and when compared to other examples of his handwriting, it didn't appear to have been written under duress. It seemed he had jumped voluntarily. So what would prompt the medical examiner to suspect a homicide? Well, within the um, unpleasantness that had formerly been Ronald's head, he found shotgun pellets. Indeed, the fact that Ronald had died from the fall was unlikely in any case, as unbeknownst to Ronald, the window washers had been working on the building and a safety net had been installed. 
Ronald Opus's body had been found in that net, and had he not sustained a fatal shotgun blast, he almost certainly would have lived. So the question was, how does a man manage to get himself murdered by shotgun whilst plummeting from a ten-storey building with the intention of killing himself anyway? It wasn't long before police had an answer. It seems that a domestic dispute had erupted on the ninth floor between an elderly couple and the husband had fired a shotgun at his wife and missed, with the pellets flying out an open window. As it happened, the second Ronald Opus was passing. Intriguing coincidence, no doubt, but it gets better. The old man insisted he had never loaded the gun. Easy mistake to make, and the reason for the expression, it's the unloaded gun that kills, but his wife backed him up. Not only had he not loaded the gun that day, he had never loaded the gun. Ever. In all their years of marriage, it was common during arguments for him to point the shotgun at her, but to her knowledge, he had never once purchased shells. A likely story thought the police, but their continued investigation turned up a witness that confirmed the couple's story. It seems a friend of the couple's son had witnessed the son load the gun. He was angry because his mother had cut off financial support, and knowing his father's propensity for using the gun menacingly, he figured it would only be a matter of time before his mother would die. He was hoping to kill her by proxy. The police now had their man, but unfortunately he would never stand trial. The couple's son that loaded the gun with the intent that his mother should die, well, that was Ronald Opus, the man who had jumped off the building in the first place. It seems it was taking too long for his dad to kill his mum, and his financial woes were mounting. He couldn't count on inheritance any time soon, so he ended it. The story presented an intriguing legal conundrum, and... This is the real bombshell. That's all it was ever supposed to do. The whole story is complete balderdash, concocted by the president of the American Academy for Forensic Sciences, Mr. Don Harper Mills. In 1987, incidentally, not 1994. The story, however, is widely believed to be true and is frequently reproduced, for the most part due to it having been attributed to journalist Kurt Westervelt, of the Associated Press. But it wasn't slack journalism on Kurt's part. He has absolutely no blame to shoulder in all of this, chiefly because he doesn't exist. Like the urban myth of the snorkeler scooped out of a lake by a firefighting aircraft and dumped on a bushfire, the whole thing is nothing more than a fiction, given credibility by falsely attributing it to a well-known news service. But still, it's an extraordinary tale, even if it's not true, and admit it. Despite its darker aspects, there was a little part of you that wanted to believe it, wasn't there? been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time.
Peace, love, light. Take care. Catch up.